Well, yeah, as Brooke said, we're uh, starting a new series today, just taking a little break, really, from our series in the Book of Acts, uh, three weeks to look at the Song of Songs, uh, which really is a love song. Um, I wonder, do you have a favourite love song? Uh, There's probably no definitive answer for what's the greatest love song of all time. Uh, I looked up a few different surveys, and uh, one song that was consistently listed at the, the top of the greatest love song Uh, was Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. And, of course, doesn't that bring back uh, memories of that classic scene from The Bodyguard? Uh, Maybe Whitney Houston doesn't do it for you. Maybe you've got a different favourite love song. Uh, There's so many to choose from, really, isn't there? And um, love songs, um, I mean, songs in general are powerful, aren't they? Uh, We remember them. Uh, They stick with us. I think the songs that we sing, they, they shape us. I can just think about how that works at church. I'm sure that if I asked you, uh, you would be able to recall uh, many more lines from songs that we sing than from the sermons that you hear. Um, I do hear people singing sometimes as they leave church. I don't think I've ever heard anyone reciting the outline to the sermon, uh, regardless of how well alliterated it might be. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on that, but simply to say that, you know, the songs that we sing are powerful. Uh, They shape us, they shape the way we think, uh, they shape what we believe, uh, they shape how we live. Which is why I think it's so important that we do listen to this book, uh, or better, this song that is found right in the very middle of our Bibles, uh, this song called The Song of Songs. Uh, Now, that's a Hebrew expression, much like the Holy of Holies, Uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, uh, it means the very best song, the greatest of all songs. And naturally, this best of all songs is a love song. I think that's fairly clear, even just from the very first part of what we've read there today. Uh, Love is what this song is all about. And so how important it is for us to hear carefully and to listen to this song. Uh, because in our world we hear, don't we, all, all kinds of different songs about love and sex and intimacy from our culture. And we will be tempted to sing along to those tunes. Uh, even though we know that our culture really has made a train wreck of those things. Uh, the, the tunes we've listened to have not led us into good and healthy places. They've often led us into terribly distorted and dysfunctional places. Uh, What we need is a better song. And here in the middle of our Bibles is God's song, uh, the Song of Songs, where we are invited to listen to, I think, a better tune, uh, this song which speaks of human love, but which also points us to the source of love, the giver of love, the one who is love, and therefore who is able to compose a song that will lead both to our good and his glory. So just over the next couple of weeks, this is the song that we're going to listen to. And uh, we're really just going to dip into it over these, uh, well, today and the next two Sundays. And uh, look, I'm well aware that coming to a book like this for some of us might make us a little nervous. Uh, I'm feeling a little nervous about it. Um, But look, you know, maybe if you're not married or uh, you're not in a romantic relationship, you might be thinking, well, what's, what's this book got to say to me? Uh, Why would I want to read a book about uh, people being in love? Well, I do want to say that while the song does celebrate human love, it's not solely about that. 
And it's not solely written to married people. Uh, no, like all of God's word, it's to all of God's people. And it's important that we all listen to this song because love and the pull of love, the power of love, touches all of us. And it's very important that we would think well about these things. We, we all need to hear what God has said, uh, said about these things as we seek to live for him uh, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. So I do hope that this will be a blessing to all of us as we do that. Um, but firstly, just to say a few things to kind of orient us to the book. Um, as I've introduced it so far, I've said that it is a love song. Uh, I'm taking that from the very first line of the uh, book there, which says Solomon's Song of Songs. And what we have through this book is really eight chapters of beautiful, delicate poetry. Uh, and that's how we need to read it, as, as poetry. Uh, we'll see that it's rich in imagery. Um, it's sensuous and suggestive. Uh, I mean, just look at verse 2, how it begins. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. That's just the very start. It's already feeling a bit like it's heating up, isn't it? But a little bit later, I mean, end of chapter 1, verse 16, she says, How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. Now, what follows through the book, we'll see, you know, the lovers will describe each other's bodies in some detail, and with some metaphors that will seem a little bit strange to us, uh, they speak of their desire to make love, and I think most late, likely later in the book they do make love. And because of this, I mean, because it's not what we normally expect to find in the Bible, um, I didn't warn you about this at 9 o'clock church last week, that this is what was happening. Maybe you weren't expecting this when you came along this morning. Um, but because it's, it is a bit different, isn't it? Um, because of that, uh, it has been handled in quite different ways uh, throughout its history. Um, for example, the Jews uh, recognised the sensual nature of the book and they made this kind of like the sealed section of the Bible and uh, you weren't allowed to read it until you were over 30 years old. That, that was a rule. Um, I kind of wonder if in our churches today if we've effectively done that, um, it's kind of sealed it off. You know, we know it's there in our Bibles, but it's maybe a bit too hot to handle. I'm not really sure how to understand it, and so we just kind of leave it there and don't touch it. Um, I'd be interested to know if you'd heard any sermons on it or if you'd done much study on it yourself. Um, for those of us, uh, or for those who have tried to deal with it, though, um, they've often then gone in two kind of opposite directions. Uh, and one way is to kind of totally desex the book. Uh, and this has been quite a common way that the church has understood it, uh, to interpret it not as talking about the love of two people, a man and a woman, but a, that it's really about the love of God for his church. Um, and a guy named Origen uh, from the second century, he's the one who kind of led the church down that line. Um, quite impressively, he wrote 12 volumes on the Song of Songs and he didn't mention sex at all. Uh, so if you go with that, uh, that's kind of called the allegorical interpretation. I mean, how would you read it then? Uh, I mean, verse 2, for example, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Well, they'd say, obviously, it's all about Jesus. He's the beloved uh, who speaks God's word to us, uh, which is better than wine. That's kind of how they would read it. Uh, well, here's one, and, you know, kind of feel free to laugh at this. I think some of these uh, interpretations get a bit unhinged. If you look at chapter 1, verse 13, 
Uh, It says, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Well, what do you do with that? Well, obviously they say Jesus is the beloved. Uh, He's the bridegroom, so he's the sachet of myrrh. Where is he resting? Well, between the woman's breasts, what could that refer to? Well, there's two of them. What else is there two of? Well, there's an Old and a New Testament. And so Jesus is the one who rests between them, bringing the scriptures together. Um, Feel free to laugh at that, um, because I I think it is a bit ridiculous. Uh, I I do think that the love uh, described here in the book is uh, primarily between a man and a woman, uh, but that it does also point us to to God's love as the ultimate love. Uh, But primarily we should take it on face value as being about human love. Now look at the other end of the spectrum of those who would then kind of read it in an overly sexual way. And I think some preachers in recent years have done that. And, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, they get a pretty wide audience when they do that series. Uh, But also I think that is a kind of a a wrong way to approach it. Because it's not not a sex manual. You know, the language here, it's it's never crude. Uh, It's never even very explicit. Uh, Rather, it's gentle and tender. It's suggestive and elusive. Um, And I think we need to be a little bit careful that we don't read too much of our own thoughts into some of those illusions. So, look, I'm probably going to plot a bit of a midway course uh, between uh, those as we explore the book together. I do think it's primarily about human love. And as we'll focus in on this first talk today about the beautiful gift that God has given in human love, but how that ultimately points us to the giver of all good gifts and his immeasurable love for us. So as we come to the text uh, then, uh, you'll notice if you look in your Bibles that there's some uh, headings there on the way through. And uh, these are to help us understand when there's different characters speaking. So if you've got the NIV Pew Bibles uh, in front of you, there's uh, the headings she and then friends and then he Uh, they're the they're the ones who speak in the book Uh, now do recognize that those headings uh, they're not part of the original hebrew text Uh, they've been added by the translators to help us uh, see that there are different people speaking here at different times but because they're a translator's decision if you do compare some of the translations you'll see sometimes those headings in slightly different places and and that's really a decision you've just got to make from reading the text carefully but they're the main characters there's the woman Uh, she's the one who speaks first and who speaks most Uh, it seems that she's an ordinary country girl Uh, she's called a shulamite in chapter six which is maybe where she's from Um, and her lover is it seems a a shepherd boy Uh, in verse seven uh, tell me where you graze your flock she says to him Uh, Then there's the friends who are referred to as the daughters of Jerusalem. And these are possibly, probably, I think, the women of Solomon's harem. Uh, And of course, Solomon is the other character whose name appears three times in the book. Uh, And there's debate among the scholars about this, but I think it's clear that Solomon is not um, the woman's lover. Rather, he is a distant figure who really presents a major threat to this couple's relationship. So verse 12, Solomon 
is the king far off at his table, while her beloved, the shepherd boy, is the one close to her. Uh, He is the sachet of myrrh uh, between her breasts. So that's kind of the predicament. Uh, All is not well in paradise, so it seems. And the reading of the book that I found most convincing is that Solomon is a threat because the woman's brothers, who are the final group of characters mentioned, they are wanting wanting to sell their younger sister, this woman, into Solomon's harem for a profit. Uh, You remember the big thing about Solomon that he's famous for is his multitude of wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had this, this huge harem. Uh, Now, you get a hint, I think, that that's where the story is going if you turn right to the very end of the book. So I'd like you to just flick over to right at the end of chapter 8. I'm just going to read verse 11 and 12. Um, Sometimes you get the answers in the back of a textbook, don't you? Uh, So verse 11 of chapter 8. Now, this is the woman speaking. She says this, Solomon had a vineyard... In Baal Hamon. And now, most likely, I think that vineyard is referring to Solomon's harem. It says, He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But then she says, But my own vineyard, and this is the woman now speaking about herself, her own body, my vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. Now, what I think it's saying is that she's telling Solomon really to go jump. You know, her brothers want to sell her into Solomon's harem, but she doesn't want a bar of that. She says, Solomon, you can, you can keep your shekels. I'm not going to be forced into your loveless harem. My desire is to be with the one I love. Now, look, I, I raise that as what I think is a good way to read the book that makes sense of it. But I do want to say that you can't be absolutely certain about that. I really have discovered just in the last couple of weeks how debated this whole thing is. Um, But I also want to say that even though there's that, you know, we can't be totally certain, it doesn't mean that God's word is unclear. Uh, It really just means that we need to work harder at understanding what God has given us in this song. So come back to uh, chapter 1 and uh, two things that I do think that we see clearly and this is what we'll focus on for the rest of today um, is that it shows us both a celebration of love as well as giving us a caution about love. So point two for today and maybe this is the most obvious thing to say about the Song of Songs is that it, it celebrates the good gift of love that God has given Now, I do think that when it comes to matters of sex, often Christians are accused of being killjoys, you know, that we often come across as saying, no, you know, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Um, Whereas Song of Songs here presents, I think, the other side of the coin because it it speaks so clearly of the the goodness and the rightness of human love and desire. Uh, God's word to us in the Song of Songs is, is yes. In the very first line there of the book, uh, where it says Solomon's Song of Songs, well, the mention of Solomon there, what that does is that it places this book within the wisdom literature of the Bible. Uh, So it could mean that Solomon is the author, or it could mean that uh, it is dedicated to him. 
Um, either way, it means that this is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And wisdom is all about recognising who God is, recognising that he has designed our world in a good way, and that the best way for us to live in his world is to align our lives and our living with his purposes. Now, one thing that we'll notice throughout Song of Songs is that there's so much imagery here like of being in a garden. Um, and there's mention of fruits and plants and trees and all kinds of things like that. And the feel of it, really, in this opening section is that it's a lot like the first garden, the Garden of Eden. So here is a man and a woman who have a right desire for one another. And that is a good and right and proper thing in the, in the, world, in the good world that God has created. So you remember in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. Um, one theologian, Karl Barth, he's argued that the Song of Songs is really just an extended commentary on that one verse. Uh, in Genesis 2, the man delights in the woman. He says, this, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And in that setting of an exclusive committed relationship, well, their desire for one another receives God's seal of approval. That is why they are united together and become one flesh. And so for a couple here in the Song of Songs, what you get in Genesis, I think the song picks up on. Uh, that their desire for one another and the intimacy they share, well, that is a good and right gift of the loving creator. So it is right for her to want to kiss him, verse 2. It is right for the friends to praise their love, verse 4. It is right for them to speak kindly and lovingly to one another as they do. Uh, I mean, take a look from verse 5. I'll read from there. She says in verse 5, Dark am I, yet lovely daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Now what's she talking about there with being dark? Well, it's, not a, it's nothing to do with ethnicity. It's a comment that she's been tanned, she's been darkened by the sun. This, this means that she's a commoner. Uh, her brothers have made her work out in the sun, in the vineyards, doing manual labour. And she sees this as something that has made her less attractive. In verse 6, she's ashamed of it, isn't she? Do not stare at me because I am dark. But then he, and I think it is now the man speaking in verse 8, he calls her the most beautiful of women. And then it just goes on from there, doesn't it? From verse 9 and into chapter 2, this kind of playful exchange between them. Now, I don't really recommend using everything that they say to one another. Verse 9, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Um, try saying that to your girlfriend. You look like a big horse. It, you know, it's probably, probably not going to go down very well. But then it you know, continues and they, they trade compliments. Um, he's her beloved, her handsome one, the one her heart loves. Uh, she speaks of herself then really is nothing special. I think that's the sense in 2 verse 1 that she's just like a common flower, like all of the other flowers of the field, like a lily in the valley. But to him, well, she's a lily among thorns. 
And to her, well, verse 3, he is like an apple tree among all of the other trees of the forest. And with this desire, well, they long to be together. Uh, Verse 4 of chapter 2, let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Um, When I do um, marriage preparation with people, uh, one of the things I I do with them is an online multiple choice questionnaire. And it's kind of a helpful way of uh, highlighting some things that maybe they haven't talked about or things that would be good for them uh, to think about before they get married. Uh, And it's quite clever. And one one of the things that it measures is uh, it it calls a, a level of idealistic distortion. Uh, which highlights if people's expectations about marriage are you know, not really grounded in reality. If they're, It's a bit idealistic. They're kind of wearing rose-coloured glasses. Now, I reckon for this young couple here in Song of Songs, if they took that marriage prep course, I reckon their level of idealistic distortion would probably be off the charts. Uh, but I think maybe, you know, at this point in the book, I think maybe that's the point. That at the start of this song, we just see something of the beauty beauty and the wonderful gift that it is from God when he brings a man and woman together in an exclusive love relationship. And I do think that for those of us here who are married, I think there are things that we can learn from this couple. And particularly what is on display here at the very beginning is the way that they speak to one another. Now, look, I'm not saying that all couples should be gushing over each other like this or that you have to be dripping with love poetry. I mean, that would probably be a bit too much. But there is here, you know, a real tenderness, a real affection, a deep concern for the other that just comes out in the way that they speak. I heard at a men's convention once, the question was asked that uh, if someone was to ask my wife to give a rating out of 10 about how I'd spoken to her in the last week. Now, what number would that be? I think it's, yeah, it's a good question for all of us to think on. And so I think this is the first thing that we see, this celebration of love, uh, that it is a, a, a good gift from God. But as we come to the next verse, which is in our last verse for today, chapter 2, verse 7... Uh, What we also hear is a caution about love, that this gift from God needs to be received in the right way. So point three, a caution about love. Let me read 2 verse 7. It says, this again uh, is the the woman speaking, and she says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, I want to say this is a very important verse in the book. Uh, One reason we know that is because this verse is repeated uh, two other times later on, and this kind of becomes like a refrain throughout the book. And because of that repetition, it really does stand as the key message of the song. Uh, Love might be wonderful, it might be worth celebrating, but we'll be careful with love. Why? Well, because love is powerful. 
Uh, and this woman, she knows that. She knows that we need to be aware of that. In the, in the climactic speech at the end of the book, this is what she'll say about love in chapter 8. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. See, love, she says, well, it should come with a label on it that says handle with care because it's like fire. Now, in the right place, it's warm and inviting and comforting. But if it gets out of control, which it can quickly, well, it, it, it can cause all kinds of damage. And so here is the caution. We need to acknowledge the powerful pull of love and we need to be aware of where our desires might lead us. By the gazelles and by the does of the field, she says, tell me that you'll be careful with it that you won't stir it up before the proper time. Now, just as I read that, you might be wondering, why does she charge them there by the gazelles and by the does of the field? That seems a bit of an odd thing to say. I mean, if this is such a serious thing that she wants to bind them on oath to be careful with, what, I mean, why swear by a gazelle and a doe? Well, I think the answer is because this is almost certainly a veiled allusion to God's name. Um, in Hebrew, to say by the gazelles and by the does sounds almost identical to saying by the hosts and by God Almighty. I think it's very fitting with kind of the elusive and suggestive nature of the book that you know, what she's really saying is that as you live before God, swear to me before God that you will not Awaken love until it so pleases. And what that reference to God does is that it reminds us that the Song of Songs does not stand alone, but it exists as part of the Bible's wider teaching about love and wisdom, about both its, its wonder but its danger. And, and we could really think, couldn't we, of so many examples in the Bible of when it would have been wiser for people not to have stirred up or awakened love. And think of Solomon himself who, who married so many foreign women and this was his downfall as they led him to worship foreign gods. I think of the havoc in Genesis 34 when Shechem's desire was stirred up and he raped Dinah. Not only was she abused but it led to then the slaughter of a whole city. Think of Samson stirring up his love with Delilah or of David with Bathsheba and the the crumbling of his kingdom that followed. Of course, there are positive examples in the Bible as well. You might think of, of, uh, of Ruth, who uh, followed God's wisdom and pursued love in the proper manner. She acted boldly, she acted daringly, but she did it in, in God's timing. As we turn to the New Testament, Paul will... Uh, speak really at length in 1 Corinthians 7 about love and sexual conduct and uh, like in the Song of Songs he speaks about what is good and right and pleasing but he'll also talk about how marriage is well it's not better than being unmarried but really what is important is how we serve the Lord and so he'll say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that all are to avoid sexual immorality and not to be carried away in passionate lust like those who do not know God so here in this song, this song of songs, I think we hear a tune that is really being played 
throughout the Bible of both the goodness of God's gift of love but also the caution that because it is so good, because it is so powerful, that we need to handle it with care. Married people need to be careful with it. Single people need to be careful with it. This is a, it's a caution for all of us. Do not arouse or awaken love in ways that God has not designed it for. And so I think the challenge for us today is, well, will we let God's song about love, will we let his song be the song that grips us and shapes us? Because I want to say that there is no one better to teach us about love. Because there is no one who loves us more. And friends, that is something that all of us, regardless of our relationship status, need to hear. Because what I think the Song of Songs does is that it does show us this picture of a love between a man and a woman, which, as we've seen, is a bit idealistic compared to how it is for most of us in the real world of relationships. But this love that we see between them, well, this love is really just a glimmer. They're just a pale reflection of the love that God has for each of his people. If you like, if this song is a, is a ray of light, then we need to look along the beam to the source of light. This is how um, C.S. Lewis put it in an article he wrote, which uh, he called Meditation in a Tool Shed. He said, I was standing today in a dark tool shed and the sun was shining outside through the crack at the top of the door. There came a sunbeam. And from where I stood, the beam of light with with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and, beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. And friends, I think this is what we need to do as we read Song of Songs. As we read it and as we see this relationship played out, we can say, yes, isn't love a good gift? Isn't sex a good gift in its proper context? But more than that, we need to look along the beam and see the source of all that is good. To see that God is ultimate, not romantic human relationships, that God is the one in whom we find our joy and security and significance and through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose love for us is the only love that will ultimately satisfy. So may we give thanks for God's good gifts, but may we find our ultimate joy in knowing God our Saviour and his unending love for us. Let, let, me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Our Father God, we do thank you for this part of your word today. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding as we come to this uh, book that is um, a bit different, a bit unfamiliar. And Father, in whatever relationships we are in, I pray that we would seek to honour you in how we live. 
Lord, we do thank you for your great gift of love. But more than that, we thank you for your love for us. That in Christ that you have called us to be your treasured possession, your special people, your spotless bride. And so, Lord, may your love fill us with joy and hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.